0: Uh, Jamie, you want to start us off?
1: Sure. Oh, God, I'm so tired. You can, t- <laughs> I can do this. Hello hello, and welcome to the Sleepy Fada, where getting some rest is best. <laughs> I'm your host, <laughs> Princess Lot. <Jan's-a-lot. laughs>
0: and I'm uh,
2: your co-host,
0: Prince Valium.
1: <laughs>
2: and I'm Andy. I, I'm always up at this time, so I feel fine. <laughs> <laughs> and we are here
0: with a... Uh, Returning guest in two senses, uh, Pavlos Rufos was with us a couple of years ago to do a uh, discussion on his book, A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past on the Greek crisis. And he's also here from two days ago because uh, we managed to run into some technical difficulties and we had to try this whole thing again nice and early. So
3: Pavlos, what's up, man? Hi, nice to be back. Finally, we have some good connection and we can, yeah, go ahead with this.
0: Well, Big props to Random Greek Restaurant in Munich for having a quiet place with a good connection to do
3: a podcast.
1: Well, no, this is, you're in the archives right now, right?
3: Yeah, I'm in the archives. The Greek restaurant will have to wait. Um, I was supposed to do it from that Greek restaurant, but um, I managed to find a a quiet room here in the archives of the Institute for Contemporary History. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's much better. And you're in
1: Munich. Right now,
3: we should
0: say. Does that mean there's going to be a really dry episode where you simply read out, you know, German documents from the 1950s and 60s on ordo
3: liberalism? Yes, but but all in German. So it's going to be a German episode.
1: (laughs) You know, we've been wanting to get more international in scope. So (laughs) maybe that would be a good idea for a bonus.
0: An internationalist (laughs) podcast.
3: Mm hmm. There's lots of juicy stuff here on the on the archive on the on the. Um, I'm looking at the the U.S. military government actually in Germany in like, from '45 onwards, so there's a lot of stuff to talk about. Yeah, is anyway, that
2: why you're talking about Marcuse earlier?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, okay. Found some stuff on Marcuse here. Very fascinating stuff.
0: And you're working on your dissertation?
3: Uh, kind of, not really. Um, I'm working on a paper, um, which is. Um, if I, if I say it now, everyone's going to be bored and turn it off. So <laughs> okay. I don't think it's...
0: <laughs> Fair enough. I, is it political economy or is it history or is it both?
3: It's... Uh, well, political economy is directly connected to history in my view. So it's it's a bit of everything. I'm, I'm looking at the, the early formation of um, the central bank in Germany and what kind of influence the older liberals had in that um, inauguration. Because the first ever, in a, in a sense, formally independent bank, independent from the government. And it was set up like that already in late 40s. So the kind of setup you have for, for central banks all around the world now, which has become the key thing since the 90s, was already in Germany from more or less 48. And I'm just trying to figure out why.
2: Real quick, could you explain what order liberalism
0: is? yeah you, you say this is boring but we have a lot of political economy listeners so uh, they, they right. might be interested
3: right well um, or the liberalism in, in, a, in a nutshell it's basically the the European mostly German but not particularly German it's also in Austria and France um, version of what people have learned to Called neoliberalism, mm. but it's not the neoliberalism of the type of Reagan Thatcher late 70s, you know, the post-Keynesian kind of neoliberal. Old the liberalism is is the the original, let's say, neoliberal um, tendency that developed in the 20s and 30s, let's say, before the war, and they call themselves neoliberal, and that's why the the, um, the term has more meaning in this sense than the than the later versions. Um, and be, they call themselves sort of neoliberal to distinguish their tradition from, or their project from the laissez-faire capitalism of mm. um, von Mises and, and people like that. Oh. And what 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 has become more like libertarian liberalism in the U.S. ever since uh, this kind of really strictly anti-state, just fundam- you know market fundamentalist, almost obsessively market-based. Um, You know, all the liberals realized, especially after the 1929 crash, that um, there is an absolute necessity for a strong state that creates the framework within which the market can function. So they they fully support the market, but they consider that a strong state can only be, um, has to exist in order to create a legal and institutional framework within which the market can function. Otherwise, the whole thing will collapse. Um, So they're a very pro-state, market-based kind of uh, version of liberalism.
0: And this tradition obviously continues to today in in Germany, right?
3: Well, it it still exists and it it kind of like, um, it it underlines a lot of, um, let's say, general... Thinking about political economy in Germany, but but it has gone through different phases, and it hasn't always been as successful or as dominant. I mean, the, you don't get taught neoliberalism if you do an economics degree in Germany for at least 20 years. Um, so the, the 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 actual like influence is kind of like um, is debated. But uh, we know for sure that they these people were very much in charge and in key positions in the late 40s, 50s, and 60s. So they created what is called uh, the German um, the social market economy and uh, the so-called economic miracle right. of Germany in the post-war period. They're accredited for, for being the one, the architects behind that. That is also debatable. Um, it's, 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 it's not very easy to know whether Germany would have had such a good economic performance if it wasn't for the Marshall Plan and if it wasn't for the very important debt cancellation of 1953. So there are a lot of, you know, external conditions that would explain, um, plus the Cold War, of course, and the decision of the United States to make Germany a bulwark, um, you know, a kind of an obstacle against Soviet um, influence. So th- these are kind of all important things. But the, the, the post-war myth or mythology or, or, or historiography in Germany attributes Or the liberalism with the the kind of um, the fundamental um, ideas that that led Germany into the economic miracle of the 50s and 60s, and then of course they they kind of gradually um, were undermined a bit. Things took a more monetarist turn. You know, the American influence became bigger with the Chicago School in the 70s after the collapse of Bretton Woods. And then they kind of lost. The love or the liberals basically aligned themselves with these kind of theories, like new constitutionalism, public choice theory, and stuff like that. But they returned, and this is kind of an interesting thing. They returned in the 90s, um, when the in the process of the reunification of Germany, because because their tradition was that they successfully, um, led the transition from the kind of planned economy of Hitler into a social market economy. And um, they were kind of re-invited or re- they invited themselves back when the question of the transition from the GDR um, into a um, unified Germany was at stake, right? So they, they're supposed to have like the economic answers uh, for um, transitional moments of, of you know integrating territories into the market economy. Oh, fascinating. And- yeah, and then again, during the Eurozone crisis, because a lot of people came out and said that the Germany's um, um, treatment of and the crisis management model was based on auto and this is a widely debated idea whether it was or not. Um, contemporary auto-liberals themselves would, would disagree. But um, yeah, but in short, this, this is this is what my research is about.
2: So order liberalism is kind of like Nirvana and Melvins and that first wave of grunge, and then neoliberalism is like mm. Puddle of Mud and all, <laughs> all that stuff that came after stained and such. And they say, well, you know, we're carrying on the tradition of Kurt Cobain, but the mm. real grunge heads know that that's all MTV bullshit. <laughs> that's basically what you're saying, right?
3: Well, it, it, it's a, it's a bit more boring than that. A bit more. <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay. Well, let's bracket it, it with that. Well, there's we'll have community. to have you
3: uh, back
0: on, Pavlos, for a uh, full presentation on the grunge theory of ordo-liberalism. Andy clearly yeah. wants to debate you on that. So, uh, yeah. in the meantime, yeah. we're going to be talking today. We're going to revisit Greece because that's what we yeah. spoke about last time. Is I think probably one of our best episodes we ever had. So. Why not have you back to give us an update, not just on uh, the, the, the economic and political developments uh, after the uh, debt crisis, uh, but also uh, our old friends Golden Dawn, who recently took a big hit uh, legally when they were banned in Greece. So we're going to catch up on that. But first... Um, you know, America's a bubble. We exist in this uh, alternate universe where there is no outside. There is no Munich. There is no Greece. So, before we get into the meat of the episode, what in general do Germans or Europeans think about what's happening in the United States this, these days, not just with um, the COVID crisis, but also the horrible <coughs> excuse me, management of it uh, by Donald Trump and, and Trumpism in general?
3: Well, I, I think it's. it's- it's safe to say that most people in Europe are, are looking at the U S with, with a degree of amazement and, and disgust at the same time, right? Because it's, it's,
1: what's the German word for that? Schadenfreude. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Classic. Yeah. Um, because it, you know, there are elements, uh, at least in the public sphere, right? There are elements of the the treatment of the management of the pandemic crisis from Trump and his administration that are just beyond belief, right? It's just, you know, everyone has done badly in certain ways, and everyone has suffered from this pandemic, and it's 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 still unclear, you know, what kind of scientific um, tools we have to to finally to defeat such a thing, but. Uh, no one, you know, has ever dared come out with things like you should inject yourself bleach, mm. right? This is like, this is, there's a level of like, you know, a comic level and tragic level at the same hey, time. I which call is that uh, American
0: exceptionalism.
3: Yeah, yeah. At the same time, at the same time, however, um, I think what, what a lot of people who maybe were not paying attention to that before um, have realized is... In a way similar to what they realized about their own societies, like how the pandemic has basically exacerbated and made very public um, pre-existing contradictions and 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 conflicts within society. And I think the United States is just another example of that. Because like maybe with Trump's treatment of the whole thing, it, it became even worse. But I think the the idea that you know the healthcare system is like in tatters, um, the the racism and how race kind of you know intersects like different, you know, um, social interests and groups and, and management and, and government policy and like housing, precarious work, all these things existed already in the United States. But I think the pandemic and the management of the pandemic have made them like even even more um, prominent, even more obvious to people outside. And um, I, think, I think there's another... An, yeah, as I said, people realize that about their own societies as well. So it's not just the United States, but it like even here in, in, in every European country, I think those problems, uh, similar problems in many ways, um, have become more exacerbated during the, the the pandemic crisis. So, so the the question, in a way, I would I would I would return that as a question, and I would say, what what do we all think that the the possibilities for moving beyond this like um, Dreadful world and, and the way it it, it it you know condemns people to, to this horrible situation. What 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 do these possibilities you know what kind of possibilities open up now at this moment of crisis? And I think that's a question for all of us to answer. It's not it's not just a thing for me to say. But I have to say it doesn't look very good.
1: Mm. Mm. No, it does not. Mm. It's I mean, nice to be reminded that capitalism is bad all over the place and not just here in America, ka-ka.
3: Yeah. No, of course, of course. But um, yeah, it's like it, the, the the economic crisis itself, um, the one that the, the the results from the pandemic is is not even that clear yet. I mean, I, I think we're we're just seeing the first signs of what's going to come, and uh, all the predictions, even the most Mediocre predictions about the future don't look good, um, but we should never forget that there was a there was a crisis and a recession on the way before the pandemic hit. Right, um, this is something that, that, that should remain like you know very clear within our radar of, of how we understand the the, the world today, because um, the the pandemic kind of landed on top of a kind of you know already developing crisis, and um, and. I think it's probably worth noting – and this is possibly a big difference with the United States – that in Europe, at least, it, it looks like the, the direction of economic policy is taking a turn. It's not complete yet, and it's it's too early to say whether it's going to be a paradigm shift or anything like that. But it seems to be the case that the old model of like austerity and cutting down on, on expenses and state benefits and everything like that and healthcare, whatever – and um, this is clearly not going to work at the moment so we we're, we're looking at a kind of a, a moment of fiscal expansion all around the european states um which is not going to be punished uh, by the european commission and the european central bank mm. in fact they they've they've kind of withdrawn the, the punishing measures against you know increasing deficits deficits and all that mm. so there, there seems to be a kind of a change of direction and i think this is this is a result of their, their complete panic about the situation because they're, they're really scared that this is going to go really bad very soon. So I think they're doing their best to kind of keep some kind of balance. And it'd be interesting to know why this is not happening in the U.S. Uh,
1: interesting. So first they tried austerity. Uh, now they're trying some sort of Keynesian economics stimulus, maybe, that the U.S. is... Uh, too far gone down the road of neoliberal capitalism to even consider and also probably our lack of class power and what are they going to try when that doesn't work
0: yeah. time will well, tell I, mean, I guess it's funny that uh, said, that greece was <laughs> greece just got the uh the wrong end of uh of the troika just like you know, five six seven eight years ago they maybe caught the worst austerity, I think, that uh, mm-hmm. any modern uh, advanced capitalist country has seen, probably in the in the post-war era. So now it's just it's ironic that all of a sudden we're uh, we're shifting over to um, to finance and stimulus uh, mm-hmm. with w- after Greece already got decimated by it, which yeah. you know brings us uh, to to our topic here. Um, You spoke very eloquently about the Greek debt crisis and that punishing austerity that was unleashed by the Troika a couple years ago when you came on. Um, After that, of course, a left populist government called Syriza came into power and we talked about all the contradictions that existed within Syriza as a political and social formation. Uh, Give us a rundown of what's happened in the last several years, what Syriza in power looked like, and what the state of uh, Greek society and the economy is right now. I guess the question is, has austerity, and I'll use scare scare quotes
3: for this, has austerity worked in Greece? Hmm. Hmm. Right. Well, um, if one chooses um, to ignore the, the kind of short period just before Syriza got elected, and the first six months of the supposed, like, ongoing negotiations that were taking place between Caesar's government and the um, European counterparts and the IMF, if you ignore that side, um, just for the sake of the argument, what happened after that was basically a continuation, if not acceleration, of austerity, as we have known that since 2010. So. Um, Quite surprisingly, in many ways, and unsurprisingly in others, what Syriza did was to to yeah to accelerate austerity, to touch um, certain issues and 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 fields of economic policy that previous governments had not even dared, despite you know the the kind of harsh austerity that was being imposed.
0: But the Washington and, uh, Post tells me that Syriza is a far left gov- was a far left uh, political party in government.
3: Yeah, How do we square yeah. that? It's- it it's really funny i i have to explain one of the reasons everyone calls them far left right is because they literally just translate their name because it is if you literally translate the name of Syriza, it's the coalition of the radical left mm. so just because they say it doesn't mean that <laughs> just because it's in their name
0: it's, it's like, a pretty smart branding choice though if you're in a yeah. in a um a moment of uh, crisis and political upheaval, facing down yeah. the forces of the UCB and the, the yeah. Germans, uh, to to brand yourself as a as a far left party in that particular political moment.
3: Totally, but but the the, the funny thing about this is that Syriza knows very well the, the people of Syriza, the members of Syriza, and those who voted for them, and um, their opponents know that as well. That everyone knows that this is not what the radical left is. Right. Everyone knows that, but everyone keeps using that because it kind of serves a purpose, right? It's just, you know, if you discredit, you know, and if you discredit them for being too radical, right, you're basically making an argument that anything that has the term radical, you know, it's a centrist, typical centrist kind of argument. You know, anything that's, that belongs to the extremes is bound to fail. So, you know, by using far left as a categorization for series, you're at the same time, given a bad name to anything that could appear as radical, while at the same time ridiculing them for um, you know, implementing austerity worse than the, the, the previous governments, right?
0: Yeah, and how does that it's- worked out?
3: Pretty badly. I mean, the, if, if Greece was, was placed under a so-called state of emergency from 2010 onwards, um, what the, the cities of government did differently from the others is that they managed to normalize that. Right, So the state of emergency situation of Greece since 2015, for the four years that Syriza was a government, became a normalized thing, it became something against which there is nothing that you could do. I mean, as we, we also talked about in the last episode, but um, Syriza was basically elected with the promise to do anything, right, to stop this onslaught of austerity. And most people elected them not because they really believed that they were going to tear down the memorandum agreement in, in one day, but because they thought, you know, even if they do one-tenth of what they promised, this is going to be enough because the people have had like five years of continuous austerity of wage cuts, welfare cuts, pension cuts, you name it. So they, they were elected on that on that basis. Um, they've not only failed to do that, but they, as I said, they accelerated austerity. So. The situation in Greece was not only of a continuing economic decline, and a, and a kind of stabilization of that decline in that at a very very low level, um, but it also meant the abandonment of any hope that things could actually get better, from 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 a kind of left-wing perspective, right. A lot of people were just like completely disappointed. I mean, people were involved in the social movements very heavily in the first two years. That didn't work out that didn't manage to um, you know, stop austerity. And then the last hope was, okay, we're going to elect the social democratic government that promises to do things a bit better and they made them even worse. So you can imagine like psychologically, mentally, you know, the, 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 the situation in Greece is just really, um, you know, has been really, really bad for the last 10 years, more or less, um, and people have little hope that things are going to get better. And now, but
1: did the austerity work?
3: <laughs> of, co- of course it did. But that
0: <laughs> it Did what, what, Did it do what it was supposed to do?
3: That, yeah, that, that was exactly what it was supposed to do. To demoralize and, and to... Uh... Well, okay, I'm exaggerating. But, um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's clear that austerity was not meant to, you know, the, the, the kind of crisis management we saw in Greece to be repeated in other places not to the same extent but you saw similar stuff in Ireland Portugal and Spain but in Greece it was the most hardcore kind of imposition and and the kind of things you saw there were clearly not meant to you know reinvigorate the economy and make it competitive you know and and, and bring about some kind of like um, you know renewal of economic output or anything like that but there was never the plan and, and and this is something that I think today it's very hard for anyone to deny that. This was never the plan. The idea was, you know, you just impose those measures without any kind of consideration about the results, because Greece doesn't really matter economically. It's only like 2% of the Euro, Eurozone GDP. It's not a big economy. It's not a destination for the German experts. It's not a destination for French exports. You know, it's, you know, it's a it, tourist place. But and, it did
0: and, matter to the extent that it was this weak link in this chain of the Eurozone and the crisis had to be the austerity had to be imposed and uh the troika had to make sure that greece didn't become essentially a um a symbol or a an alternative vision uh of of what the european union could be right or 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 drop out of the or drop out of the yeah yeah
3: well there's an element of 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 Disciplining, right, which is which is unrelated to the to the kind of economic aims. There's an element of disciplining, but we, I, I don't think we should take that metaphor too far because I don't think anyone at the time in 2010, 11, not even people in Greece, ever thought that the the kind of social movements that would develop against this thing would be so massive. So it's not that they were preemptively trying to make sure that you know um, Greek workers and, and, and their demands are, are going to be, and their possibility to collectively organize are going to be like preemptively destroyed. I don't think every, anyone expected such a massive movement. Um, but at the same time, yes, the, if there was any economic consideration in this whole thing was to make sure that no matter what, that Greece does not um, leave the Eurozone, because there the, the economic consequences were um, unpredictable. And this is what came out time after time in all the reports done by, you know, the, the IMF, the German banking system. You know, everyone kind of knew more or less that, you know, it's unpredictable. Well, if if there is no legal, formal way for a country to leave the Eurozone, the, the monetary union, and if that happened, we have no idea um, where it's going to lead, how much money is going to be lost, because you know there's a whole kind of capital markets and money markets and, and a whole kind of interconnected system of a common currency that if you if you get one country out it, it's not clear um where it's going to lead plus if if for whatever reason, Greece left the eurozone and they managed to do relatively well, that would be an invitation for other countries with less to lose. Um, you know, to, to, to leave the Eurozone as well. So their their main concern was to make sure that Greece would not leave the Eurozone and to make sure, of course, even more importantly possibly, that all the money that had been invested by French and German banks primarily in the periphery of the Eurozone would not be lost. That, these were the main two concerns that led the kind of austerity mechanism in Greece. But it had nothing to do with the Greek economy itself. And, and and the results are kind of yeah plain to see today because the greek economy has just sank to to great extent and it's not expected to be revived anytime soon
2: it's important to talk about what the the goals of austerity and the european union in regards to greece are i think because if we want to talk about Syriza and uh, and golden dawn and the you know the fates of the the Social movements, or like the the Greek the nationalism and and pop, populism, bound up with those movements. You have to look at the way the the state interacts with them in regards to its you know broader goals as a bourgeois state within this larger coalition of bourgeois states, right? And and so uh, I think this is an important way to set the foundation for talking about what's happened in Greece over the last couple of years, where New Democracy, the the center right party has returned to power, defeating Syriza, which was very popular not too long ago. Uh, also on the heels of a new mass social movement um, in the last couple of years, which was a, about the the uh, name of Macedonia. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's. I'm not bringing it up because it's like a silly thing. It was like a, you know, kind of the center po- central political question in Greece for a moment, right, in terms of populism, um, that a lot of people say... Uh, had a lot of the same characters or the same actors as the, the square movement, um, following okay, a-
3: that, that, that. Yeah. That's just, just plainly false. I mean, it's yeah, just right. not, not comparable, not comparable. I mean, um, we're probably going to get more into it now, but just, just to qualify my, my comment, um, during the, 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 the anti-austerity movements, you had demonstrations of, you know, minimum of forty fifty thousand 50,000 people, and then leading up all the way to 250,000, 300,000 and, in one day there was also like more than a million people on the street wow. this was the kind of like quantitative you know in, in a country of 11 million right so this is the, the, the quantitative element of the movements the macedonia thing i i really even in the, in its peak you know you never managed to get i would say more than 15,000 people and and these were people that would bust in you know Paid for by political parties and bust into the center of, of um, Athens to demonstrate at the parliament. You you cannot, in any possible way, compare the fifteen thousand idiots, doing stuff about Macedonia with the, with the thousands of others who did, stuff against austerity. And it's not comparable. And, another point about the composition: the idea that people in the squares movement, were um, fascists, or or that there were fascist elements or Golden Dawn again is is a myth that has been perpetuated by many different sides of the political spectrum, but it's an absolute myth. I mean you you did you would of course in a in a in a huge crowd of like two hundred thousand people, you would have individual fascists, right? Okay. There's no way to to deny that. But they never came as a political force. They never presented themselves as a political group, they never presented themselves politically in any possible way. One of the reasons being that the anti fascist movement in Greece was is so anti-fascist that they're more concerned about fascism than they're concerned about social issues sometimes. So they came to those demonstrations looking for fascists and do nothing else. Well,
2: I I hadn't heard that there was a large fascist component in those demonstrations. What I had heard was that there was a shift from uh, the the kind of 2008 style uprising insurrection to a more nationalistic or left populist nationalism uh, taking root in those movements that continued into this kind of uh, even anti-fascist nationalism or populist left populism with Syriza and uh, continued to fester until you saw the, uh, you know, the, the a powerful emergence of nas- like uh, more right nationalist questions take root in the anti-Macedonia protests and in this uh, reaction to anarchism uh, and, and refugees, of course, which mm-hmm. is how new democracy came to power. You think that's a fair narrative?
3: Well, yes. I mean, from that perspective, you're you right in the sense that um, if I had to 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 say what the nationalist elements in the square movements were, I would also say it came from the left, right? It came from the left, from parties like Syriza or other parties of the extra-parliamentary left who are kind of Leninist or whatever formation they had. Who? In many ways, identified the austerity as something being imposed on Greece as a country, right? as a, as a national humiliation, as a you know as a kind of external you know foreigners, but like rich foreigners, like Germans or whatever, um, you know, imposing on the poor Greeks. That so that narrative was definitely there. Um, and it, it continues to, to animate a lot of the discussions. I mean, left nationalism is a real issue, not just in Greece, everywhere, right? You know, you see it in, in people supporting Brexit from a left-wing perspective. Um, you see it in, in, in many different forms all around the world. It's not just a Greek thing. But I would say that the composition, you know, although there's there's, there's a common element of nationalism, which means understanding, you know, social questions translated through a national Kind of um, prison. Um, although the common element is there, the composition of the two, you know, the, the kind of squares type nationalism or left populist nationalism and the kind of right wing Macedonia, um, it's completely different. I mean, we are talking about straight, extreme right wing elements in the case of Macedonia and these things, and um, hugely supported by the church and the most conservative reactionary elements of the church. And um, it's also geographically quite different, of course. Macedonia is like a very, you know, um, key thing for a lot of people who live in in the part they call Macedonia, or the north part of Greece. Um, it is not as significant to people in in southern Greece or even Athens.
1: Wow! So a... I know which side you're on. It's
3: <laughs> <That's> clear. <laughs> I'm on the side of reason <laughs> and communism.
0: Same thing, really, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: we are never not gonna ask you about the Macedonia question when you
4: come on the
1: show. <laughs> just so you know, it's
0: just a trolley <laughs> thing we love to do. So, so yeah. now New Democracy, this center right formation, is back in power, and there's this great article. We, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but it, it's it's incredible. It's uh, by a guy named Giannis Palai- Palaiologos I'm really bad at uh, at Greek names, but uh, Aleologos. Thank you. Thank you, Pablo. But it's in the Washington Post, and the, and the headline is, Greece voted populism out. Now it has to make sure it doesn't return. So in this article, it's equating Syriza with, of course, Golden Dawn and saying that uh, oh, both, both of those parties only got any backing whatsoever because they, they did opportunistic lies to the people of Greece. Mm. But now finally the government, mm. the, the, the adults are back in charge of the government and this whole populism thing is gone forever. So what do, mm. what do you think of that? What's your take on that?
1: Oh, and was this, we should also add that the Golden Dawn suffered a major setback recently. Is that, did they mention that in this?
3: yeah yeah that's that's so that no, no, the, the article the article is, is is older right it's 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 july 19 so it's just when the democrats got elected so the new the golden dawn thing hasn't happened yet
1: ah okay you
3: wouldn't but it's like um i would say that the the best way to understand such an approach is because it, it, it's so boring right it's so typical it's basically yeah it's right-wing conservative slash liberal, you know, a kind of weird mix that you have in Greece and in other places, I'm not saying it's unique, um, but it's, it's, it's very very openly right-wing and openly conservative supporting poor democracy that also w- wishes to align itself with the, the European kind of, um, you know, vision. So the, the pro-European conservative liberals um, and they, they, the constant kind of like point of reference is that we are not part of the extreme, either the extreme right or are the extreme left. So these are the two kind of, you know, sides that everyone should avoid. Syriza has already been, we've discussed how it was, um, you know, coined as a far left party. There are even people in Greece who believe that, incredibly enough. Um, and then, of course, the golden dawn is, the, is, the, is on the other side. Of course, this kind of useful and and you know um, convenient, let's say, narrative on behalf of new democracy completely ignores you know some very you know basic stuff that connect new democracy to the far right, and the first one historically being that the extreme right and the far right was always incorporated, integrated inside new democracy until 2010 when Golden Dawn became an actual political force. Until that point, every crazy fascist or monarchist or, you know, bizarre nationalist would vote for new democracy. Um, there were very small exceptions. There were some extreme right-wing parties here and there, but they never had any kind of significant force. They never even managed to get into parliament. So the the, the main, you know, source of extreme right-wing um, positions and, and, and interests as they existed in Greece, which we can now safely show, say it, it's about like between 7 and 10 percent of the population, something like that, if we judge from the, the
0: but, votes. But maybe 50 goes, to 60 percent of the police officers, though, right?
3: Well, specific units of the police, right? Let's be clear about that. Um, I'm I'm not trying to defend like parts of the police, but... It's the, the results that people keep talking about, this 50-60% in favor of Golden Dawn, represented the specific units of the riot police and the motorized police, you know, the kind of centrally in Athens, the, the ones that are um, voting in their police station. Um, and that's how we got the numbers. We don't know what, what the, the result is in the rest of, of um, Greece or the rest of the police force. I'm just clarifying that. Um, to avoid any misunderstandings, but yeah, of course, there is there is traditionally a lot of, you know, support for 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 things like that for the right wing. Let's say the right wing conservative. As I said, the extreme right was also integrated in New Democracy, and then in 2010 things started to change, and one of the main reasons being that the New Democracy fully supported, despite its pre-election promises, it fully supported the restructuring process and austerity. And then when that happened when they actually got elected in 2012 and started implementing another round of austerity you know those elements of the right wing or the extreme right wing that were disappointed um started you know moving towards golden dawn and that gave golden dawn you know by 2013-14 they had almost seven percent of the vote now it's absolutely clear that that seven percent came from new democracy and it's important to understand that because it explains why New Democracy decided to take them to court. It's one of the key reasons um, is precisely the fact that they realized that they were losing votes.
0: Ah. Because
3: until that moment, right, we know for sure it came out and, and it was officially acknowledged that the, the right-hand man of the prime minister, Samaras, his right-hand man in parliament, a guy called Baltakos, he w- was having constant secret... Talks and negotiations with Golden Dawn, with the top members of Golden Dawn, who were already by that time in Parliament. So that came out at the time. So he he had to be sacked and stuff. And of course, it was an isolated incident, and he was he was blamed as his own prerogative. It wasn't something that was planned. But this is absolute nonsense, and everyone with half a mind can, can understand that. Of course, there were there were some instances. We had a lot of um, news news. Um, people like mainstream journalists of the kind of right-wing conservative side who were actually coming out and saying, well, you know, if, if Golden Dawn got a bit more serious, we wouldn't rule out a coalition with them. You know, that was the kind of like environment in which Golden Dawn became an acceptable and normalized political force in Greece in the 2011 to 2013
0: And, and to be clear, you know, the the word fascist is thrown around a lot in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, you know to it's thrown around about you know typical regular conservative right wing formations in kind of a hysterical manner sometimes but it's not hysterical Mm -hmm. to call Golden Dawn a fascist party it has uh, Hitler iconography it's project is literally like an updated classical fascism it is um, it's a white power Mm -hmm. ideology and it's a it's a revolutionary nationalist uh,
3: political Mm -hmm. formation right yeah, there's absolutely no doubt. I, I would go further than that. I would say fascist is not, maybe fascist is not even the right term. They are properly Nazi, right? This is a proper neo-Nazi organization. And and until they became more widely known and they started to to consider the fact that they might be. Um, getting votes, which means you have to appeal to more average kind of voter rather than your group of thugs. I mean, they were openly Nazi, right? If you look at their, their magazines from the 1980s when they were created in the 90s, they had covers of, of Hitler, Himmler, the SS, blah, blah. There was, there was no denying that they were Nazi and they, they were not trying to hide it. They were they were taking up that marginal space of extreme right and ideology and were so extreme about it that um, that created part of their image. What's kind of
2: interesting about them is there's a a lot of Nazi parties in Europe that did temper themselves to the extent that they just look like a normal centrist party, like the the, uh, the Swedish Democrats, mm-hmm, for example, mm-hmm. were Nazis in the I think the 90s, and today they're the the second or third biggest party, yeah. considered the mainstream right in a sense. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Golden Dawn, in their platform, talks about uh, national socialism, and uh, but I, interestingly, they didn't turn away from that kind of street hooliganism, street movements, um, and continued to pursue like a, a working class base, mm. right? Like, uh, I, I, remember seeing them going heavily after, uh, KKE, the communist party, um, mm. uh, unionized or organized, uh, uh, industries like dock workers. Um, so they kind of stayed, they were trying to do like the, uh, the Hitlerian Nazi, uh, strategy. Um, mm-hmm. as opposed to a lot of other Nazi parties in Europe that are that are trying to blend in with the right. Mm.
3: well, I mean, th- it's an interesting kind of story because um it's it's in a way, it's not as linear as as um as it sounds because I mean, you have to take a lot of things into consideration. One thing would be that these these this is a group of thugs that have existed um by violently, you know um, making themselves known. In small circles, I mean, until 2010, more or less, only the anarchists, some leftists knew about them, right? Nobody even talked about them because they were so marginal. But like, you know, there was an ongoing war with the anarchists and, and everyone who was involved in radical politics in the 90s and 2000s knew about them, but no one else did. So they grew up in, and, and were formed in this kind of environment. And it's, it's quite difficult to give that up, right? When that is your organisation, that's the way you function. That's the structure of your party or, or organisation or whatever you call it, and it's not easy to, to to get rid of that. Let alone when you know once you get elected initially in, in in municipal elections in 2010, and then eventually in Greek Parliament in 2012, um, they actually had even more um, let's say immunity, right? It's 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 not coincidental. The one of the you know, when speaking to their, their close members and the kind of dedicated militants, um, one of their, the, the, the leaders um, in, in leadership position of Golden Dawn at some point said in 2012 that, um, you know, d- don't be fooled, we, we have not become Democrats. We're only inside Parliament in order to destroy it from the inside. And it helps us because now we can carry weapons with a license. That was that was the approach that they had, right? That we we we've been legitimised, but we're going to use that legitimacy in order to continue doing our things, and um, on 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 the side, you know, um, and having you know, if if they already had like good connections with certain parts of the police force, then now these were like even legitimate, um, you know, they were allowed to do things that they they would have probably gotten them in trouble in some way or another in the past, so. That is, you know, that is what they did with that. But that is also one of the reasons that they got destroyed in the end. Because, you know, you, at some point, you have to make a choice. If you're a parliamentary party, you can't just, you can't go around stabbing people, right? Um, the rest of the parliamentary parties are feeling a bit, you know, uneasy about that. <laughs> so you, you I would kind of think so. Make, yeah, so you have to make a choice. And I think New Democracy was trying to you know, convince them to make that choice and to become integrated in a wider kind of nationalist, right-wing, conservative kind of agenda. And uh, somewhere there was some kind of miscommunication, or you know, loads of them were were not particularly interested. Because you know, you have to keep in mind this: at the same time as New Democracy is kind of legitimizing them or trying to to be in communication with them, they are gaining their support by being anti-systemic, right? For 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 being the exact opposite of what new democracy wanted them to be. Um, Sorry, yeah.
1: It's interesting, like, in a parliamentary system, um, people that would be in the same party here in the U.S. are actually in different parties. Like, it reminds me of, you know, the sort of symbiotic connection between the Republicans and the, you know, fascist street movements here to the degree that we... Have them, and we certainly do have them. They just don't have yeah. the same amount of power,
0: and the ideology is different.
3: Well, I mean, you know, Trump recently came out and said, you know, the Proud Boys should, should stand by. Right? I mean, it's. <laughs> I think, I think, I think you're totally right that there's a there's a very common, you know, theme. You you have a right wing um, party in government, and you have all these extreme right wing contenders. Um, there's bound to be some kind of relationship between them. And sometimes it works out well and they get formalized and, and they became more mainstream. Otherwise it doesn't and you have what you had in Greece after 2013. But let me, let me come back to that because like, as I said, one of the reasons that go, New Democracy decided to go after Golden Dawn was the fact that they, they knew they were losing votes. But another reason was this. We already talked about it in a previous talk, but I'm going to quickly repeat it to, to keep people up to date. The, the social movements against austerity were more or less ended in 2012. By the middle of 2012, you had like more or less, after, let's say, the middle of 2012, you had no mass mobilizations whatsoever. There were no general strikes, there were no big demonstrations, no big riot, nothing like that. When the, the last, um, when, when Golden Dawn attacked and killed Pavlos Fisas in 2013 um, there was an immediate kind of response because as I said there, there's always been an anti-fascist movement in Greece and, and especially after the, the end of the social movements a lot of people who had become politicized turned into anti-fascist activities so uh, the day after thesis was was murdered by, by Golden Dawn members there was this massive demonstration in the place where he was murdered and I think it was more than 20,000 people and I think at that point New Democracy realized that allowing Golden Dawn to continue with its, um, you know, thuggish, violent kind of activities risks reanimating a kind of social movement that had been buried for, for almost a year. I think they, whether they were right in that, you know, approach or not, it's impossible to tell, but I'm pretty sure that they were kind of concerned that it might be the case you know it's the first time you had a massive demonstration with riots after 2012 and they were concerned that this might you know if this continues it's gonna it's going lead to, to an, uh, you know yeah reanimation of the social movement and I think this was the second important concern that led them to you know attack Golden Dawn until that point and it, and it's so obvious that they they were they were not even thinking about taking Golden Dawn to court until that moment from the simple fact that the charges that were brought against them, there was like 32 charges brought up against around 70 people.
0: I'm not sure that we've, we've updated the listeners on this. Yeah, but if we, they need don't- we,
1: we should mention, right, that uh, a, a court in Greece recently laid down a 13-year sentence on the leader of Golden Dawn for running a violent street gang. So that is what we are referring to. They've killed people. They're bad, folks.
0: And this has just yeah, happened. Yeah, they, so you're talking about 2012, 2013, but it took, after seven, eight years, finally now, new, the new democracy government, the, the state of Greece, it's, it's decided to crack down to the extent that Golden Dawn now, finally, is considered an illegal organization. Yeah.
3: Okay, let me let me let me like qualify that statement a bit, just to be to be um, more Let's precise. Let's be
0: precise. Yeah.
3: So, in 2013, they get charged, right? And then, you know, um, you have a, a five and a half years of trial, and then eventually the, 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 the final decision of the trial comes out, of the first trial, right, comes out um, a few weeks ago. Um, they still have an appeal, so the sentences they have now might be mitigated by that time. We don't know for sure. But the most important thing about this trial is this. When, when Golden Dawn was brought to court in 2013, the main charge against them was that they were a criminal organization. And this is quite significant because if you're just taken them as Nazis, there is no law against that. If you try to ban them as a political party, the constitution doesn't allow it. The only way they realized that they could actually, you know, destroy that party formation and take them to jail was to accuse them of being a criminal organization. This is the law that is used against the mafia. And it's suitable in the case of the Golden Dawn, not because they are a fucking neo-Nazi mafia, but because it means that once you establish in court that there is a criminal organization, that means that the the ones who are in a position of leadership get automatically sentenced for a minimum of 10 years, mm. if not more. It's
0: like a RICO just charge. For
3: being, right? Yeah, just for being members of the party, right? So they don't have to be connected to any specific, that doesn't have to be evidence for any specific Incident any criminal activity that they were involved. It doesn't you don't even have to prove that they gave the order for the attacks to happen Simply by being you know in charge of this organization. They get a minimum of 10 years. So seven of them Right received 13 years each just for being the leadership of a criminal organization. This is what happened a few weeks ago
1: So, okay, we're talking about the Golden Dawn It's a party as well as a violent street movement and as we all know That means they need foot soldiers. So who are these foot soldiers? What is their class character? Um, And you know what? I'm going to tie this into a little bit of discourse that we've seen on Twitter lately about the connection between uh, economic crisis, austerity, and far-right movements. Um, Our uh, more online listeners may be familiar with this tweet from... uh, Rich kid of Jacobin, Walker Bragman. Uh, just kidding. We love you. Uh, we love everyone who uh I, who I, I don't even know who Walker said,
0: Bragman is. So. I don't know if I love he, him or not.
1: He said, uh, this is the home. He, he posted, okay, so a little bit of background. Um, recently, there was a kidnapping plot ah. foiled in the U.S. from some people who were going to kidnap uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And these were, you know, far-right radicals. Um, And the FBI raided their homes and arrested them. And this guy posted a photo of one of their homes, which uh, is really like a bit of a Rorschach test in terms of uh, whether you look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's a shitty house. Uh, This guy is so poor or... You know, oh, hey, this is a house with two trucks in the driveway, one of which seems to be carrying some sort of recreational vehicle on it. And, you know, a dumpster and some well-maintained flags, one of which is the Confederate flag. This guy's doing just fine. But he says, this is the home of Joseph Morrison, one of the Michigan men recently arrested for his plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Can we acknowledge that maybe economic circumstances play a role in radicalizing people? So, uh, what is what is the role of the economic circumstances in radicalizing people here? Are they just a bunch of you know disaffected uh, white working class uh, people who've decided to blame immigrants for their misfortune, or what's going on here?
3: What, what is the alternative? What, what is it, the implication that, you know, the economic crisis and people's hardship doesn't play a role in, in things like that? I don't understand.
0: Well, that's um, a, I mean, a, a uniquely was, American... Uh, you were talking about um, conservative liberals uh, in, in New Democracy, or, or the the Washington Post piece. I think the mainstream of American politics is exactly that conservative liberalism, and people... In the media, politicians want to deny that there's any... Uh, relationship between economic austerity or deprivation and "quote unquote" radicalization, because yeah. in the United States they want to blame it on some amorphous uh, racism that just exists, kind of above and beyond all the other aspects oh. and and topics of American political
3: life. Right, well- kind of racism which is like separate from like class position or. Right.
1: I mean, I, I was trying to get at because um, I know that the traditional social base for fascism is actually the petty bourgeoisie, not necessarily the uh, the poorest or most remiserated in society. And I was wondering, like, yes, we I we all know there's a connection between economic crisis and far right movements. But is it as simple as. Uh, these people are,
3: you know, yeah, yeah.
1: they're experiencing deprivation. Yeah. Therefore, they turn into fascists, yeah. or is it a little more complex yeah. than that?
3: No, it's it's like it sounds like a very stupid statement because on the one hand, of course, there is some kind of connection because you cannot separate, you know, one's economic conditions from things. But but it definitely is not a linear connection, you know, a direct connection between being poor and being a fascist. So it, this statement is like wrong on all counts because it's like it's kind of. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't want to talk about him too much. I don't. I don't care. That <laughs> Let's drag his ass.
0: We'll do a bonus Let's, episode. It's an just interesting question
3: it. because I would say, I think what Jamie said about the, the the petty bourgeoisie being the traditional kind of class force that supports Nazism. I think historically there's a, there's a very strong element of truth in that, but um, when we talk, when we try to extrapolate historical. Um, truths let's say historical facts and and to explain today's world it becomes a bit more complicated because first of all what what constituted the, the petty bourgeoisie in the 30s and 40s is quite different from what it would be today um or people use the category in different terms and uh, the other major difference would be that in the 30s and 40s fascists were Successful in running countries, and today they're just they remain to a certain to a large extent marginal movements. I'm talking about like proper fascists or you know, Nazis and stuff. Um, so we cannot just simply say that because in the 30s and 40s the petty bourgeois, you know, petit bourgeoisie decided to align itself with these kind of authoritarian fascist movements that this necessarily means that these are the people who are gonna support them today. I don't think we can, we can make that extrapolation. At the same time, having said that, I would say there is a strong element within fascist ideology that supports that kind of petty bourgeois kind of support because when, when I speak of petty bourgeoisie, I mean small owners of capital, right? which means you have one shop, maybe even one factory. It doesn't mean that the people are poor. It doesn't mean that they're rich. It means they have a very small amount of capital that allows them to not be working class, to not be forced to sell their, their, their labor for a wage um, in, a, in a kind of like consistent way. Um, and there is, it is part of petty bourgeois ideology, I would say, around the world to to try to remain as far as way. A, a way as possible from a working-class proletarian situation. I think there's a lot of contempt and resentment towards the working-class, precisely because the petty bourgeoisie is in such a kind of, you know, fragile position that it could, you know, depending on a crisis or a specific bad calculation, um, could end up being proletarian. And, and there is an element of, you know, contempt towards the working-class which feeds a lot of the fascist kind of, um, you know, movements um fascist movements are basically you know there to to restore order and to basically act as 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 movements as as organizations against working class against a working class that tries to liberate itself through its own means so i think that there is a connection that can be made and and, and i guess you could make the the similar argument for fascist movements today and i would definitely testify to the fact that the law of support um, for golden dawn in Greece was um, generated within petty bourgeois circles. At the same time, you know, we have to remember Greece is a pre- predominantly petty bourgeois country. So calling the fact in you know, the golden dawn phenomenon petty bourgeois doesn't explain a lot because <laughs> the rest of the petty bourgeoisie was like concerned with other stuff.
0: <laughs> right, 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 right. So, so um, I, I'm wondering what kind of setback this is. Uh, I was I was thinking about posing this question. What does it mean? for the far right that all of a sudden a bunch of them are in prison. They've been declared illegal, but based on what you were saying earlier in the history of it, it seems like new democracy or the, the regular far right um, kind of spun golden Dawn off uh, as a kind of enterprise in this moment of crisis where opportunistically a very, very, very dangerous uh, not Nazi party could get to the point where they had 7% in the Greek parliament. But then New democracy, when the time came, when this traditional right-wing formation um, felt the need to, uh, because of their own particular political market share or the dangers of a uh, rejuvenated Greek working class movement, they kind of brought brought it back in. They, they got rid of that competition out there on the far right. So I wonder what it means now. Is is new democracy simply gonna reintegrate uh, these fascist or, or semi-Nazi elements back into itself? Uh, is this um, this right-wing street thuggery going to continue? With we've seen a lot of anti-migrant and uh, anti-squatter sentiment. Basically, what is the future you think for the for these sort of uh, frightening right-wing movements?
1: Yeah, maybe the center-right uh, defeated populism once and for all.
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, just to, to start from the the final thing. I, I don't think you could call Golden Dawn populist in any way. So, so that in itself shows that the, the guy who wrote that article doesn't, you know, has a very very narrow and probably false understanding of what populism means. Um, but but coming back to those questions, very important questions, and and the the fact that voters or supporters of Golden Dawn were integrated back into New Democracy was already clear from 2015. And it became very, very clear in the last election where the Golden Dawn did not even manage to get 3% of the vote, that which is a threshold to get into Parliament. So the idea that um, you know, um, they, they started losing their support in, in, in electoral terms was already clear from 2013-14, and now it has become absolutely clear. And it's also clear that those votes went back to New Democracy and not somewhere else. Um, people who voted for... for Neo-Nazi thugs are not going to start voting for Syriza or the Green Party or something like that. That's pretty clear. So they went back into new democracy, and that's that's absolutely evident. Um, of course, this is what I wanted to say before, and again, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not the first one to say that. But um, the idea that um, Golden Dawn leaders and members in prison doesn't defeat you know, the kind of fascist elements or fascist tendencies within a society, that's also absolutely clear. So, of course, you know, I'm very happy to see these people going to jail. We all know what 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 jail means, and this is one of the reasons we're against it. But, you know, if it exists, I'm happy to see people like these Nazis there. Um, but that doesn't, that's not going to change necessarily the, the the kind of, you know, what bred that kind of tendency. At the same time, however, we have to recognize that the, the, the amount of polarization that existed um, during the years 2010 and 15 is not there anymore. Um, so the, the kind of polarization and, and the kind of idea that this is external, you know, imposition by the Troika against our country, and then you only have those people who collaborate with them, like PASOK, New Democracy, the mainstream parties, and then you only have as an alternative option, the anti-systemic parties, whether that be Syriza or Golden Dawn. That kind of polarization around the memorandum agreements doesn't exist anymore in Greece. So one of the key elements that brought Golden Dawn where it did is, is no longer there. The fact that they're in prison, you know, probably means they're going to be destroyed. Their party still exists and it's unclear whether they would be able to run even even now as candidates from prison. Um, There's a kind of weird legal situation there, I'm not going to get into that, but it's possible that they they, they might do. But let me just say something about that, because a lot of people have been saying, generally not about Greece, but have been saying, you know, if you you treat those people legally and you put them in jail, you're making martyrs out of them. And if anything else, Greece is an example of how that approach is completely wrong. Because these people were, were charged in 2013, it took five and a half years. Um, for the trial to come out. And in the meantime, they just kept losing and losing and losing their support. They ended up, um, you know, initially they, in their trial, they had they had signed up 250 witnesses to come in their support. And in the end, only 60 showed up and most of them were their relatives. Right? Huh. So, yeah. And, and, and there's a reason for that. I think this is a kind of an interesting aspect that might be relevant for other countries as well. One of the main reasons is that structurally Golden Dawn, from the very beginning in the 80s had this policy of protecting the leader or the leadership from any kind of like legal trouble so whenever a member of golden dawn would do something you know stupid or criminal or or would get charged for it golden dawn would turn around and pretend that they never knew him right so they would completely abandon them and um you know when there were like 20 30 50 thugs that didn't matter that much but when you have a party for 100,000 votes and you get a lot of people involved in these criminal activities and then you immediately denounce anyone who has anything to do with it, like obviously that's not gonna work very well for you. And a lot of people turned around and became like prosecuting witnesses against them, people from inside the group. So they were
1: victims of their own success.
3: Well, yeah, if 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 you call that success, like abandoning your members when they're in trouble, it's, I don't know if that's success, but <laughs> um, they fell victim to that kind of strategy, which was successful in terms of like protecting the leadership, let's say, until, you know, that charge for criminal organization came up. But until that point, it was successful protecting the leaders. But it also meant that anyone who had like uh, decided to dedicate their lives to it and get involved in activities that could put them in jail. Um, was risking being completely abandoned and, um, you know, betrayed, basically. And that's what a lot of them felt at the time, that they were completely betrayed by the leadership. And that's why so many of them turned prosecuting witnesses. And and that was quite a significant thing of the trial.
2: So I want to close it out on a, a question, bringing it back to uh, like a radical left, a revolutionary strategy. Um, obviously, a- anti-fascism has sort of defined the, the early Trump era in the United States, the resistance and I think it was successful in the sense that it did kind of stop the street momentum of the alt-right and these uh, this emerging white supremacist movements. But uh, I think we've seen seen that movement kind of transform into more, um, you know, the, the muscle of the Republican Party, a more civic nationalism, less radical, less white supremacist, like you said about uh, Trump's message to the Proud Boys, but also mm-hmm. the Three Percenters, the Oath Keepers, groups like that. Maybe not as large as we imagine them, but but willing to use violence um, yeah. uh, when uh, when summons. But is so, there
3: anyone uh, in the West who's not willing to use violence? This is my question. <laughs> Whenever I look at your
0: country, they, there was an <laughs> interesting place. There was a poll that came out recently where the the rates of people who agreed that political violence is sometimes necessary on the liberal left and on the right has gone up from 30 percent now to sixty or seventy percent in the United States.
2: Yeah. Well, what what I mean by that is not that uh, there, there wasn't violence before, um, but uh, like uh, for, for a long time, it was kind of confined to uh, fist fighting or, you know, hitting each other with poles and stuff. Right, um, right. This summer, we started seeing uh, people killing each other with guns. And yeah. I think the fact that that rolled back pretty quickly, that that didn't, uh, you know, explode into, you know, Uh, more generalized gun battles between different political factions is a, is a positive sign um, that shows that people are willing to kind of temper their desires to kill their political foes. Uh, But my question is really, um, you know, you know, looking at the fate of golden dawn uh, and you can also apply that to other more militant uh, Nazi groups throughout Europe, like the Azov battalion uh, Mm. for example, and even the alt-right in the United States, it seems like there's a quality of these groups where they're uh, unofficially linked with the main right-wing party, but they kind of exist as cannon fodder against their political enemies, be it the far left or, you know, in, uh, or, or what have you. And then when they've served their purpose, when they're no longer politically expedient, the the far right can kind of just bring them back in or, or repress them in some mm. way. Uh, what do you think the Greek situation uh, should serve as a lesson for anti fascists or, or generally revolutionaries in the US.
3: I would only make really general points because I don't I don't think you can actually, you know, take a situation of the of the historical significance and development that we had in Greece and just extrapolate and talk about fashion moves in general. To be honest, I think it it doesn't really work like that. But if there is you know understanding like the proper situation of Greece, which is the only thing I can, I can, I guess I can offer rather than make a comment about the US um, might be helpful for people to the extent that they see similarities or they recognize the differences. So that's, so the the three key elements, I would say. The first one is that, you know, the the reason that the Nazis got done the way they did, one key reason is because they were a criminal organization we're not talking about attacks, only attacks against um, left-wing people or migrants and stuff, but they're also involved in extortion. They, 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 there was some kind of charges about trafficking. You know, They were involved in loads of shady shit in the past, and they continue to do so, apparently, as members of parliament. So that was one easy way to get rid of them. I don't know if that is the case for other political parties of extreme right, um, you know, the Across across the world. I mean, in some cases it probably is. In some other cases, it's not. But what I'm trying to say is that the the, the situation in Greece proves that the legal tools for um for for defeating um you know the golden dawn from a judicial point of view were there, and when the politics kind of shifted, um you know they they, they could be used. And a similar situation, I guess, could happen anywhere doesn't maybe it doesn't have to be a criminal organization but there could be some kind of traditional you know um process against like violent groups if the political will is there um and of course by political will i don't mean the, the, the 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 politics of disagreement with with nazism i meant the political will in terms of like you know we make the political decision as a state to deal with that specific problem in a specific way now the cannon fodder kind of metaphor you made, I, I don't think you could you could actually say that for Greece. I don't know if it's the case in the US, it, it quite often sounds like that, but not in the case of Greece. I mean, there is some affinity between the new democracy and, and elements of the extreme right wing that are part of new democracy, and there's an affinity in terms of like their overall strategy towards migration, for example, as it was open and in, in clear in, in 2012 onwards, and then from 2019 onwards as they got re-elected I mean it's probably useful to remind people who listen to this that the first law that new democracy passed in 2019 in July the very first law that was passed in parliament was cutting health care for migrants who were in Greece that was the first thing they did and we didn't get a chance to talk about that a lot but the main kind of you know, um, approach of new democracy ever since they've been in power is a very strong anti migrant um, kind of thing. So, what I'm trying to say is there is a structural state led force um, that has a very clear anti migrant um, you know, approach. They do not need fascist thugs going around in the streets doing that job for them. You know what i mean so it's like the idea that the golden dawn was somehow utilized or manipulated by a new democracy for their own i don't think that's an accurate description i would you know i'm willing to discuss it but i, I don't think it's an accurate description they were not new democracy was probably not against when it was happening you know the the idea of having random thugs attacking migrants in in places you know is a false a form of disciplining the migrant population and keeping them in a constant state of fear um, which is very beneficial for for state policy. but um I wouldn't make such a direct connection between that and 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 new democracy manipulating and use and going down for their own purposes or as cannon fodder um, I, th- I think okay i'm gonna I'm gonna speculate a little bit about the us because I don't have a very clear view <clears throat> but I have the impression that the um, the the outright far right situation in the United States it's in some ways is much worse than it was in Greece. Not because um, um, it was okay in Greece; it was pretty bad, but in the sense that the the connection, as, as some of you have already mentioned, the connection between these these fascist groups and the official Republican Party seem much more embedded than they were in the case of Greece. I mean, in Greece, you know, you had some connections with the new democracy, you had some affinities in terms of ideological policy and stuff, but it seems to be that in the US is much more embedded in a, in a specific way. And that makes it more problematic because they have much more institutional support, I think. It, that's the impression I get from the outside. Yeah. Um, but that also means that they are more easily controlled. If those connections are very strong, that means that if you know, the, the, the people at the top of the Republican Party or the people who act as mediators are more in a position to control and, and mediate, um, I think that the, 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 the questions of violence and, and hardcore violence you know, become more problematic when you have groups like that that are uncontrollable that are um, that feel completely isolated or marginalized, um, that start to feel that they're losing any kind of grip they had over their world um, than they did before. That's when they become desperate, and I think that's when they become more dangerous. That's my impression. Um,
1: yeah, all of these guys—they just want Trump to be their daddy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I think Jamie had one final question, but uh...
1: well, God, I've been rolling a lot of. A lot of the things you've said around in my head, um, you know, I was going to go on uh, one line of thought about how uh, these far right groups can only be de- like you can't defeat them by voting. Right. You can only defeat them by, uh, shall we say, extra parliamentary means either by using the full force of the carceral state to neutralize them and put them in jail or you know literally with violence with fighting in the streets or you know even some kind of civil war which may or may not be on the horizon but you know as we as we continued to talk about it I remembered oh yeah um the real threat as I've been saying is the cops and the state and the violent arm of the state. And it might not be as, uh, as, as headline grabbing as, you know, uh, armed Nazis beating up immigrants in the streets, but, um, the, the state itself, the carceral state, um, our immigration enforcement apparatus is carrying out violence, uh, against migrants and others, um, that is just as bad, if not worse, on a much, much larger scale. So um, then I got uh, a little bit depressed all over again, um, (laughs) thinking about how uh, even if we could defeat these violent Nazi gangs, um, we still have the state to contend with and we still have, you know, the conditions that led to their existence in the first place. Right. Because there's a widespread idea that. You can only defeat uh, the far right by voting for neoliberal centrist parties, right? Those are the only two options. um, When in fact, it just seems like you're throwing more fuel on the flames.
3: Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, I think the the idea of voting them out of existence is like belongs, you know, alongside the ridiculous ideas of history that should be laughed at, but. um, at the same time, I would say, yeah, what you describe is absolutely correct, and and it's, I, I found, in Greece, I found it problematic back in 2012 when I saw many people focusing on Golden Dawn instead of the ongoing and continuing crisis. Um, so th- there's an issue in that. But at the same time, I would say the possibility of the police to act the way they do, um, of the castle state to treat migrants and whoever falls in their hands, in such despicable and human ways, that possibility is not is not some kind of God-given right. It depends on the dynamic of forces. And if there is a development of a massive social movement, you know, not, not the idea of getting in power through the Democratic Party, but a, a development of a mass movement that sets these questions, you know, these are these are the, the, the only things that can actually change. Let me just remind one thing about from the Golden Dawn trial that is, uh, not we might, I'm going to say for the first time, I didn't say it, but it's quite an important thing. And this is like um, um, maybe a nice way of, of closing this thing. Um, the state prosecutor um, had actually suggested that there isn't enough evidence uh, to show that Golden Dawn is a criminal organization. That was her official proposal. So the state prosecutor um, was going to acquit them. But what you had outside of the court was a massive movement um, building, not as big in the beginning, but you had like some very strong dedicated groups who were following the trial throughout all these years. And in the moment of trial, however symbolic that is, but in the moment that the trial was gonna conclude, there were about 40 to 50,000 people demonstrating outside the court. And that was absolutely crucial in making the final decision come out the way it did. It was not the state using judicial means that was actually the, the the sole responsible party for 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 having that result of having Golden Dawn. that we have gone down. I think it's absolutely clear, and it becomes clear from looking at the state prosecutor's proposal that um, for the state itself, it would have been easy to just like hand them down like soft you know sentences and, and you know release them even. But it was it was the outside pressure of the movement that showed that you you could actually affect decisions on that level. And I think that goes for, for the whole thing, not just for the far right. It doesn't go for fascist groups. It goes for anything, you know, the, any kind of state force. I mean, the, the massive movement you had in in in, in the United States after the, the murder of George Floyd is an indication of that. I mean, you had more than 20 million people, unprecedented numbers, going out in the streets in the United States for an issue of racism and police brutality, and that is absolutely, you know, Absolutely phenomenal, and this is this is what where you build from. And this is the kind of pressure you need to start changing things.
0: I can't think of a better way to uh, to end our episode and discussion, Pavlos. Thank you so much, man. It's always a pleasure to have you on. My only regret is that, uh, for a variety of reasons, including the global pandemic, we couldn't be together in person to record. But uh,
3: yeah, you know, same here. Uh,
0: hopefully, sometime soon.
3: Yes, yes, hopefully one day we'll meet again
0: next year in Jerusalem. (laughs) All right. So long, everyone. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks
3: for having me. Mm.
4: Σε για λίγο μισή κόντρε τη ηλικία. Σε για λίγο τιμούρι στην άκρη και τα σταριλίκια. Πίστεψε με, δεν σου πάει το μπατζηλίκι. Πουτάνα να είδε μόνο στο πρώτο σου χαρτζηλίκι. Να σου πω, ευκαιρία τώρα που σε βρήκα. Πω έχω αλλεργία σε κάθε είδου κλίκα. Το μόνο που σου μοιάζει κομμάτι από τη βρύδα. Με όλα αυτά ξενέρωσα για τη δικιά μου γκίκα. Δεν με ενοχλεί που ο καθένα παίζει από ένα όλο Δεν με ενοχλεί, δεν σένοχλω αυτό είναι όλο. Χάσε με μένα, γο τα βάζω με την πένα. Και μόνο σε αυτήν θέλω να βγάλω. Αποθυμένα yeah. γράφω για εκείνου που δεν ζουν στην ησυχία. και την πόλη μα και μιλάω με χρώμα και με υγεία. Yeah. Για εκείνου που κινούνται σαν σκιέ μέσα στο βράδυ, Για τον καθένα που με νιώθει μάγκα είναι λάδι. Ακούω οι αλήθειε μου βρίσκονται νεπαντού. Από το κανεκού μέχρι και σταλάει yeah. τον κού. Θα του βρει με του οπαδού των πιταμπι. Yeah. Και στον βορρά, σταλάει να τα σπάνε με του πιλτά σκιλ. Yeah. Μόνος μου και όλοι σα, όλοι σα και μόνος μου διαλέξα yeah. το